Good morning. Uh, I especially want to say good morning to Martha, who always sits so close. Thank you for keeping me company up here. I know what you're thinking. Many of you, you sit in the back, you think it's a guest speaker. If he's rubbish, we can sneak out. No one will know the difference. Um, but thank you for your commitment, Martha. You're in it with me. And if by the end it's just me and you, I'm okay with that, I suppose. Um, it's good to be here uh, again on Super Bowl weekend. I confess I'm a Detroit Lions fan, um, and that's a dark confession, which means I've never really had the opportunity to be especially excited on this weekend of the year, given that we're 0 for 49 in making it to the Super Bowl. Uh, but truly, I always enjoy teaching here um, on the weekend when I'm invited, and so it's good to be back. Uh, around 1940, Bill Wilson and his co-founder, Dr. Robert Holbrook Smith, co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, made a spectacular discovery. AA was working. It was working in most cities like Akron, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. Men and women were literally being transformed from the crushing tyranny of alcohol that had just absolutely wrecked their lives. So naturally, thousands in other cities were desirous to launch this program within their own towns. And after years of launching in New York City, these two co-founders made another spectacular discovery. What they found was that the leadership, unlike Akron and Cleveland, the leadership in cities like New York, you know, the sort of sophisticated, thoroughly modernized, culturally progressive cities whose citizens had little use for God, determined to contextualize the program for the city. So they got rid of all of the spiritual language and implications of the program. And what they found was that the success of the program plummeted when they got rid of that. And it was then that Bill Wilson, one of the co-founders, concluded this. He said, what makes the AA program really work is the spiritual angle. And I would suggest that this is true not just of AA, it's true for all of life. And many of you could attest this morning and bear witness to the fact that you've discovered that the spiritual angle, which Christianity would claim is surrendered to Jesus, that the spiritual angle is essential to flourishing. It's not optional. It's essential to flourishing because you've come to realize at some point in your life that you simply cannot fix the deepest part of yourself that has been broken. It's not, it's, it's not some sort of help, some self-help thing that we can sort of get over the hump that we actually need some sort of outside transformative breakthrough to bridge the gap of the sort of chasm of brokenness that we have felt. And so honestly, when we think about our friends, when we think about our colleagues, when we think about our neighbors, without any condescension, we long for them to experience the good news of Jesus because... We know how it has deeply changed our lives and continues to deeply change them. But in our society, I suggest there are so many obstacles to belief. I mean, conversations with neighbors, friends, colleagues, you're very much well aware that when you even bring up the name of Jesus or Christianity, it comes with a litany of other reasons why the Christian faith may or may not even be plausible. I'll just give you a few obstacles that we have to face in our time, right? The obstacle of exclusivism. One of the things I hear all the time in the city is, man, I, you know, I, I kind of like Christianity, but it just seems so exclusive that Jesus would be the only way to the Father, right? So that's something we have to think about. How do we talk about that in a way that is engaging in a way that's winsome, in a way that helps people identify what it is that the gospels actually claim. And then something like bad PR, 
We see this all the time in the media where sometimes the church or sometimes those that claim to be Christian are sort of broadcasted through the media where there's a lot of public relations issues that people have with Christians. Some right on, some are misused and misunderstood. And then we have the obstacle of things like miracles. In a sophisticated, modernized society, miracles are very difficult for many people to actually take seriously. And they think, you know, Christianity seems great. It's a great ethic, good principles of living. I just don't know if I can really take the miracles of Jesus seriously, right? Huge obstacle. And then we look at things like the problem of evil. How do we explain these things? I want to suggest that Scripture actually addresses each of these issues in the gospel. But, the ten, but this morning, what we're going to look at, the scripture that I want to look at, it hints at a fifth obstacle, an obstacle that is underneath all of them. Because what I've shown you so far is but the tip of the glacier. And you know that any glacier that you see on top of the water, the bulk of the mass of that glacier is actually what's underneath. And the issue I suggest is this. Oftentimes, what you see on the front, what people declare as this is the problem I'm having with Christianity, oftentimes those are problems. But what's underneath it for most people is that we live in a society where it's difficult to come to terms with surrender, to come to terms with the release of control. And so often these things on the top, though they're issues, they're just strategies to get around the fact that we really don't want to lose control of our future of our life. We want to clutch on to that. And I believe that this is the most challenging barrier we live in within a society of radical individualism, radical autonomy. It's the air we breathe. It's the candle in the room that we no longer smell because we've been in the room way too long. Consider the words of the 19th century American essayist that I would suggest is still the residue of all of the areas of society that we live in. Ralph Waldo Emerson says this, self-trust is the essence of heroism. Self-trust is the essence of heroism. I mean, when you really think about that statement, and I believe society embraces this statement, it renders the prospect of surrender as cowardice, as anti-heroic, that if you can't, you have to trust yourself because nothing outside of you is trustworthy. That's a really dynamic claim. And the invitation to surrender is a significant challenge to a disbelieving world. If you're here this morning and you're investigating Christian spirituality, let me start by simply just putting you at ease that surrender to almost anything is always a, a, a process. It happens over the course of time of gaining trust, of learning to trust something and to get to a point where you can finally release yourself into it. And so it's okay to be here and to not be ready to take that leap just yet. Perhaps you're curious, but you're not convinced. You're still exploring. And I get it. I get it. If that's you, I totally get that. Because surrender is a huge step because it, it makes us feel vulnerable it leaves us feeling exposed, and we live in a society that trains us to hedge against vulnerability for many reasons. I mean, one of the reasons, obviously, is the fact that when we have stepped out perhaps before in trust, I mean, even with like a human relationship, let's just say, we experience certain levels of pain and mistrust and things that cause betrayal and wounds from our past that make us think, I'm not even sure this God, if God exists, is trustworthy. 
would I really want to surrender to that? Because it's much more comfortable and natural for me to take Waldo, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Emerson seriously that tr- self-trust is probably the only way to go in this world. So it's no wonder that surrender is a process, that it takes time. And I want to show you this morning how the Bible is going to reveal something then that I think is very true for us today. So I want to suggest again that the, the, the pathway to surrender generally looks like this process. And here's what it looks like. Invitation, strategy, realization, surrender. Invitation, strategy, realization, surrender. And I'm going to spend the rest of my time unpacking what I mean by each of these. So let's look in this text, John 1. Here's the invitation. The invitation, verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, if you're like me at this, when you come across this text, you want some clarifying questions such as, okay, Jesus, I'll consider following you, but like, where where are we going? If you tell me where we're going first, I'll give it some thought, right? Or perhaps you would say something like, if you were Philip, Jesus, do you have like a card or a website or some sort of like pithy statement that I can get my arms wrapped around to know where we're actually headed here, right? Um, But from the very onset of Jesus' ministry, his minimum standard is to get beyond self-trust. Isn't that fascinating? That's that's not like the end-all, be-all goal of the super-Christian. The minimum standard to following Jesus is getting beyond Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's getting beyond self-trust as the essence of heroism, beyond self-reliance, and to at least consider surrendering to his path. And the challenge of the invitation that Jesus gives us is the loss of perceived control, forfeiting our self-governance and our predictable outcomes. And I think that makes a post-enlightened society such as ours very, very nervous. It makes me very nervous, quite frankly, to actually continue to to do that, to trust that God knows better than I do and to to move into that mystery that that Faith even just sang about. Let me tell you a modern parable by Cynthia Bourgeot. It's a great thinker, great writer. She says this. It'll be on the screen behind me. Once upon a time, In a not-so-far-away land, there was a kingdom of acorns nestled at the foot of a grand old oak tree. Since the citizens of this kingdom were modern, fully westernized acorns, they went about their business with purposeful energy. And since they were enlightened, they engaged in a lot of self-help courses. There were seminars called Getting All You Can Out of Your Shell. There were even woundedness support groups for acorns who had been bruised from their original fall from the tree. There were spas for oiling and polishing those external shells and various acornopathic therapies to enhance longevity and well-being. One day in the midst of this kingdom, there suddenly appeared a stranger acorn among them. He was capless and dirty, making an immediate negative impression on his fellow acorns. And crouched beneath the old tree, he stammered out a wild tale, pointing upward at the tree, he said, we are that. Delusional thinking, obviously, the other acorns concluded, but one of them continued to engage him in the conversation. So tell us, how would we become that tree? Well, said he, pointing downward, it has something to do with going into the ground and cracking open the shell. Insane, they responded totally morbid, why then we wouldn't be acorns anymore. The point of the parable is that there's a thing called a manageable life 
where you're sort of the master of the universe. Thank you, Tom Wolfe, Bonfire of the Vanities. And then there's an abundant life. And those two things are completely divergent paths. And it's not that a manageable life where we self-govern and have all the answers and we are in the seat of the illusion of our control, it's not that it's all bad. But as Jim Collins would say, author, it's that the, is it not that the good that often gets in the way of the great? And so I would suggest that this idea of the abundant life for those who will receive it, it's a difficult life to choose the path of surrender, but it's always worth it. And it only begins after the acorn consents to fall into the ground, surrender its shell, and give itself to a difficult and sometimes painful process, but to realize that in the end it will become what it was intended to be. Jesus once said something very similar. He had a teaching in the Gospel of John where he says, very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And, and Jesus here isn't talking about physical death. He's talking about an ego death, a sort of control death, a master of the universe death, our relentless pursuit of independence, of autonomy. So the invitation to follow Jesus, which is still the invitation to us today, is I would suggest the most difficult passage in all of Scripture. And the reason for that is because it challenges the modern axiom that the individual is the measure of all things, can achieve all things through sheer will, and should be accountable to no one if you think it's right for you. That's a difficult obstacle to climb in our time. Ernest Kurtz, who is the famous historian of AA, he did his PhD dissertation at Harvard, and it was called Not God. And as he continued to write about this phenomenon called AA, he wrote about the challenge of surrender to an alcoholic. He said the breakthrough occurs when the addict acknowledges that God is and that he or she's name is not God. Something changes, something opens for them when they can release that reality that they are not God, but God is. And there's some sort of external power that is greater than them that longs to see them become whole. And he goes on to say in his dissertation, to acknowledge deep in the soul not being God, in other words, there's more than self-trust. First of all, we had to quit playing God, concluded the founders of AA, and then allow God to play God in the addict's life, which involved daily, even moment by moment, surrender. You know, the first time I read this, I just began to think, you know, we're all addicts in our own way. If it's not alcohol, it's greed. If it's not greed, it's lust. If it's not lust, it's control, which is typically what's underneath all of these things. And what we find in the text is that Jesus is giving all who will hear the invitation to turn from the autonomous, self-destructive paths that we are on and to follow him not toward religion, not toward institution, not toward primarily rules and regulation, not toward shrinking you down and putting you in your place. What Jesus is interested in is cracking open your shell that you actually come to realize you don't need anymore and that through surrender, you can actually become who God has fully intended you to be, which brings us beyond the invitation and into our initial response. And the response to the invitation is often strategy. There's a strategy. It's happening right now in this room. 
It happens in me every day when I have to really struggle with whether I'm going to believe that God will actually supply daily bread. Where I actually have to believe that God cares about my future and knows it better than I do. Knows what flourishing will look like better than I do. And so what do I mean by strategy here? I mean it's that persistent choice that you and I make to resist and reject the invitation of Jesus because we've come up with some very rational, reasonable, sophisticated reasons. We're very good at strategies. We're very good at finding a reason why we shouldn't take Jesus at his word and pursue our own path because we think it's better. In verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. So just camp here for a second. Philip is in. Philip took little persuasion. He was, this process for him went very quickly saying, I believe this is the guy. I'm following, I'm in. He goes and gets Nathanael. And Nathanael said to him, verse 46, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Now let's camp here for a second on, Philip's, or on Nathanael's question. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth. He receives the invitation and goes into strategy as to why he thinks maybe he doesn't want to move in this direction. The question, I think, is a strategy for Nathaniel to preserve life as he knows it. That if this is the guy, if this is the Messiah, then what if something's going to be required of me that would cause an interruption to my already comfortable level of life? More often than not, the call to follow Jesus is disruptive. It doesn't sort of fit into our calendar. It doesn't fit into what we perceive to be what the rest of the week was going to look like. It's disruptive at many levels. In other words, the call of Jesus often gets in the way of our plans. And I think we often have our own versions of Nathaniel's question, at least I do. My versions went something like this. I've never actually asked, can anything good come, come from Nazareth? Why would I ask that? But I have asked things like this, what's it going to cost me? I have asked things like, can I really trust him? I have said things like, I'm, I'm sort of busy right now, call back later and we'll talk. I like my life as it is, and I don't want anything to interfere with that. My worldview doesn't allow me to take the miracle of the resurrection seriously. Have you heard that one? Can we really trust the Bible? I don't want to become like other Christians I know. That's the biggest fear in the city I minister in. Christians have such a poor reputation for reasons justified and unjustified in many ways. There's such a fear of becoming the way media portrays Christians. And the list goes on and on. And for a long time, these were my own questions in life. But let me suggest, these are all strategies of self-preservation. They're all strategies to preserve control. What about this last question? What does a man from Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago have anything to do with me in the 21st century? Surely you've heard this one at work, right? Surely you've heard this one with your neighbors and your friends. I think... I think this last one is most like Nathaniel's question. And here's why. At this time, Nazareth had little more, scholars think, than a few hundred inhabitants. They were mostly living in stone caves cut into the hillside. It would be like saying this, we found the Messiah people. He's in West Virginia. That's where he is, right? You know, I, West, you'd think 
Well, nothing wrong with West Virginia, but why would he be there? Wouldn't he come through New York or San Francisco or, or like Tokyo or something? Like, why, why West Virginia? Why would he be there? The, the root of Nazareth, in the Hebrew, they think, it's, it comes, they think it comes from this word nazer, which means branch, right? So track with me for a second. It means branch. Hundreds of years before this, hundreds of years before this dialogue that took place between Nathaniel and Philip, hundreds of years before, there was a prophet named Isaiah. And he said, prophesied that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots, Isaiah 1, 11, 1. And what this basically means for us this morning is, and I think this is really helpful for us in our time, where you thought something would never happen, out of it came something you never thought possible. In other words, it wasn't predictable. It wasn't reasonable. It wasn't really all that rational that the Messiah of the world would come from a kind of back hill town that no one would have even thought, maybe except Isaiah, that from something very unpredictable, the hope of the entire world would come. It's not what you'd expect, and that's how you know. That's how you know. Because it transcends all of the ways that you would have predicted it to be. The early theologian Tertullian said, credo quia absurdum. In other words, I believe because it's absurd. Not because it's anti-intellectual, because it's not, but because no one would have made this up. It's just a crazy tale. It's a crazy story. And perhaps if you're here and you're cynical and you're wondering if Christianity is true, I would just say something so small, something so unpredictable to become such a viable way of life for 2,000 plus years, especially in other parts of the world, means it's worth investigating. It's worth at least considering the plausibility of this faith. But we go from invitation to strategies But then comes a realization, and this is where things sort of hit a turning point in life. It's when something happens at a deeper level within you, a sort of revelation at sorts, a light bulb sort of goes off. You have these these few moments of your months where all of a sudden things seem crystal clear. There seems to be some sort of clarity, some clearing that just all of a sudden things make sense for maybe even just a brief moment. Isaiah, or excuse me, uh, John 47 of this chapter. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael asked him, where did you come to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now here's, this is strange. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Look, we have so much to clear up in this passage in like such a small amount of time. Jesus makes a profound pronouncement about his character. He says, there's no deceit in you. This is their first conversation. Jesus says, you're an Israelite, there's no deceit in you. And Philip seems to be, or Nathaniel seems to be saying, I've never met you. How would you even know that? We have never talked before. You know nothing about me. And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Well, that settles it. You know, if you read this text like me, you're like, well, that's not persuasive at all. And we look at this text and, and, and you think about it and there's got to be something in here that the first century context would have picked up on some sort of cue, some sort of idiom that we don't, it's just lost traction in our time over 2,000 years. And there's a phrase in there that the first century writer wrote in there and would have been picked up in a first century audience. And it says this, under the fig tree, hupotain sukane in the Greek, under the fig tree. He responds, you are the son of God. 
you are the king of Israel. In other words, you are the light of the world. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? You know, when we read it, it just seems that Nathaniel is really easily persuaded. Or it seems like, hey, not a good thinker. This guy's just not really critical at thought. This phrase, under the fig tree, in the Jewish writings, it tells of distinguished rabbis who would rise very early and go study and pray and meditate under fig trees. That this was a practice for those that were seeking the Messiah. They would go do, saying, How long, Lord, will you please send the Savior of the world? And it leads the reader to assume that Jesus' statement, I saw you under the fig tree, was directly connected to what Nathaniel had just been praying about. And all of a sudden, this light bulb goes off, and it's a realization from invitation to strategy to revelation. It was enough for Nathaniel to say, you are the son of God. How would you have opened my mind and known that I was longing for that? Something happened. There's a moment in our lives when all of our strategies suddenly disappear and we have these sudden realizations that maybe the gospel is true. That Jesus came to live the life we didn't, to die the death we deserved, and rose from the grave basically saying, I've conquered death and for those who believe in me, this is your future. Not by works, by grace, faith, the gospel. Sometimes it comes through words from a friend where you all of a sudden have this clear understanding, oh my goodness, it's all beginning to make sense and all the dots are connecting. Sometimes it happens when someone opens the scripture and explains it. Sometimes it happens during worship. Sometimes it happens through hardship when we have nowhere else to turn but to God. But know this, when you begin to realize things in your life and connect the dots, it doesn't simply lead you to say, well, that was interesting, next. That was a dead end, so what's next in life? Realization is designed to lead you to something bigger. It's designed to lead you to a question, now that I've had this sort of epiphany in my life, what do I do with it? What's the next step beyond? The realization isn't an end in and of itself. It's a portal into something even better. It's designed to move you to a final posture from invitation to our strategies to a realization and finally to surrender. Verse 50, Jesus answered, do you believe these things because I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. In other words, don't stop there. Keep pressing in. And he said to him, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the sun Man, it's as if Jesus was saying this. If you thought, Nathaniel, that me telling you that I saw you under the fig tree was meaningful, follow me. Stay with me. Surrender your life and I'll blow your mind. And that's the invitation for us. It's the long obedience in the same direction of a faithful life pursuing God. If you have yet to surrender to Christ, what's really keeping you? And whatever that is, is it really worth it? What would it mean for you to take the first step toward Jesus this morning?
simply walk forward after the service and to just pray with someone up for him, to say, I, I'm ready to move forward. I've been putting this off, and it's just time for me to really begin this journey. The beginning of prayer, you know you've arrived at when your primal cry is help. Until we get to that place, that's often our first prayer. Help, it's a good prayer. It's a very good prayer. And if that's you this morning and for the first time you're saying, help, I've got to get beyond self-trust because I'm tired of playing the hero and it's just not working for me. Second question is this, if you have surrendered to Christ in your life and you've been on this path, where is there an area of control that you struggle to truly entrust to God? You've just been hanging onto it, clutching, and it's killing you. Sleepless nights, anxiety, stress, toil, fantasy about what may or may not happen, trying to predict the outcome, trying to make it happen, sheer force of will, and it's just exhausting physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially, all the way across. And it's just time to surrender. It's time to let it go and to trust that Christ will be enough for you. Love to close us in prayer. And if any of that resonated, you just want someone to be with you. Someone to just pray with you, sit with you, join you in that. There's, there's power in agreement. There's power in someone not judging you, not shaming you, but saying, I get it, I'm right with you. In, let, invite me into this and let's pray about this together and take it to God together. Something really powerful in that. So I just want to invite you forward afterward. There'll be some people up front. I'll be up front. And uh, that's not something for just uh, those that are wrestling with the big stuff. I, I, in my church, I go forward almost every week. I need it. I need it because it's the little stuff. It's the cracks in the foundation that end up in the end just taking us down. So if, if you fall anywhere into that, we'd just love to pray for you and be with you before you this morning. Let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for being God. We thank you that we don't have to be. We thank you that you love us in every shape that we are and yet you are committed to see us become who you've called us to be. So I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. God, would you give us a vision for, for an abundant life, for a life of surrender, for a paradoxical life of what it means to truly experience flourishing. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Such a joy to be back with you. Just to say go in peace and uh, feel free to stick around for a little bit and connect. Peace.